there's two philosophies about the human heart and its relationship to other human hearts, to other people. As far as when two people or a person in a group of people, whatever the situation happens to be, and one is removed from the situation for whatever reasons, those two philosophies are out of sight, out of mind. The other one is absence makes the heart grow fonder. And by the way, those aren't scripture, okay? Just so you know, you know, it's not cleanliness next to godliness, not one of those ones of things. <laughs> but Paul's letter to the Philippians has been so underscored, and I feel like I have connected with Paul in a way that I have never connected before with a writer of Scripture as he writes about his sentiment concerning the believers at the church at Philippi. He really loved them. And I don't mean with that, with that, just, just that agape love, you know. Well, yeah, I have to love you because I have to love you because I'm a Christian and, you know, God loves you, so I have to love you. But I don't have to like you. Right? Well, Paul loved them and he liked them as well. And I assure you that in, uh, as one week grew into another week, grew into several other weeks, that I certainly was not expecting absence made the heart grow fonder. The last time I spoke was June 1st. Yeah, really. What I didn't realize this week when I was writing the pastor's desk piece in the faith connection that we hand out when you're entering is that the verse that I cited in there happened to be the very last verse that I spoke on before the unexpected hiatus that just came upon me. And I think it's fair to say that if the apostle had a favorite church, Paul's was the church at Philippi without question. The Philippian Christians were different from all those in whose lives Paul was steeped, having been a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And of course, yeah, there were bright spots here and there for Paul with the other churches, but those bright spots if you read Paul and you read his letters, they were exceptions to what in Paul's world were the routinely troubled, independent, stubborn, and recalcitrant believers who needed constant reminders of who they were in Christ and what that meant in practical, behavioral, life-changing ways. And so Paul's relationship to them was pretty much, I think of Paul as being God's holy enforcer. And any involved parent with a little child or with their little children understands what a day is like when it seems that all your interactions with your children on that day are, stop teasing your brother. Stop annoying your sister. Don't play with that. It's not a toy. Get that away from your nose. Remember what happened last time? Don't put that in your ear. Do not speak to your sister like that. Let the dog's ears alone. Don't you talk to me in that tone. And on and on it goes. You know what those days are like. Paul's correspondences with the churches were more often than not to put out fires, to give rebukes for some really horrid decisions not in keeping with the heart and the mind of Christ. And it was cyclical. It's not like once he dealt with it, that was it, it was done. But rather it was over and over, so he was dealing with the same things repetitively, sometimes with the same people. 
in his second letter to the Corinthians, which is actually his fourth letter to them, we only have two for us saved in the scriptures, he says, I have previously said, when I, when I, <laughs> let me try that again. I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Isn't that a nice, upbeat letter, one for the church to receive and for the apostle to look forward to of having to go now and present, pre, uh, confront them face to face? And it's the same issues that he wrote them about before. It gets wearing, to say the least. And so, in this letter to the Philippians, it's such a change. The Philippians were a source of joy in Paul's ministry. They were actually nice to think about, rather than having to grab a bottle of Tums with every word he received about so many other churches. When I last spoke, I was likening the Apostle Paul's joy with the Philippian church to Barbara and my experience in being called here to faith, lo, so many years ago. In August of 1990, we arrived and we never looked back from that day forward. And it continues. The people of faith, back in those days when it was just a, a, a church in its infancy, were thoroughly behind us and cared for us, and not merely as the pastor's family but more as friends and true partners in ministry, which is how Paul felt about the Philippian believers. One might think that churches actually caring for their pastors like Christians rather than cutthroat businessmen would be the norm. But I want to assure you that in my knowledge of many pastors' experiences, it isn't. I can tell you stories within our own district of the Evangelical Free Church, within the New England district, of churches cutting, withdrawing, or reducing their pastor's vacation time due to budget concerns, as if it even affects the budget. No, let's, not ta- let's, let's take away that vacation from the pastor that enables him, more often than not, to just barely get revived, to have enough strength to last till the next vacation time. No, let's take that away because of budget concerns. It's a common tale. I've known of a few churches making their pastors use their vacation time to go to a denominational conference that the church wanted them to go for, to go to, and paying for the conference out of their own pocket. Oh yeah. These things are unknown to us. James Dobson was telling a story one day on the radio. Actually, it was another man who was with him on his show, and uh, he was a pastor, and uh, he was talking about an episode in their church where uh, along these sorts of lines about basically church abuse of, of their pastor and their families. And the pastor's wife was home with the stomach flu. Now, they lived in a parsonage. A parsonage, if you don't know, is a home, a house that's owned by the church, which the pastor lives in. So here's the pastor's wife at home, sick with the stomach flu, in bed, throwing up, etc. And there's a, on her door, and she gets up and makes her way out of bed and gets to the door. And it's some church ladies. 
They were there at their house, you see, it's our house, it's the church parsonage, to show some other lady their house. And the pastor's wife said, I'm sick. And they proceeded to barge their way in and to show her around the house. And I remember I was working in the factory at this time and I was listening to this going, you got to be kidding me. And the the co-host, and I forget who he was now at this time with Jim Dobson, says to Jim Dobson, he says, Jim says, what would you do if that was you? He said, I would have thrown up on him. And I thought, that's absolutely, man. <laughs> you see, these were not the experiences of Paul with the Philippians. Paul was always buoyed up when he thinks and prays for these believers. And you really get the sense in reading this book that he loves gushing on them (laughs) because he has a rare opportunity to do so. Because of the Philippians' faithfulness, Paul in verse 6, which is where we pick up, reveals his confidence in the Lord in light of their commitment to their earthly shepherd, to Paul. And that is the significance of the little word that begins verse 6, at least in the New American Standard Bible, the word for, meaning because because of their faithfulness to the mission and the purpose of their bondservant Paul. He is confident, Paul writes, of this very thing, that he who began a good work in them will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now, where's Ben? Oh, Ben's right in front of me. Awesome. Good. Ben's our pastoral intern, as you well know. And so for his benefit, parsing the grammar for him, we read this, and we understand that Paul has a confidence, which is an ongoing confidence. We know that because of the perfect active participle. And because the God who started a work in them when at the point of conversion, and we know that because of the use of the aorist participle, shall be bringing them to a not yet realized place of completion, meaning not until the day of Christ comes, hence the future active indicative third person singular. Got it? Okay. (laughs) Isn't that fun? So let me make that all simpler, though. A simpler way of saying this is BPWMGIFWMY. Now, I don't know how many of you, that's, that's, that's honest to goodness. I didn't make that up. It was a bumper sticker. I think it was a little lapel pin, and that's all it said was those letters. You know what it stands for? Be patient with me. God isn't finished with me yet. Okay? I, I, some of you may remember that. Now, even if it's somewhat hokey, verse 6 undergirds Paul's sentiment. In this verse, he, that is God, will perfect. Now, perfect means, uh, means to, uh, it does mean to perfect in the normal sense that we think of it, but it means also to complete, to bring to absolute complete fulfillment of whatever it is that's being talked about. Here he's talking about the fact that he will bring to completion what God wants you, the Philippian believers, to be when the day of Christ Jesus arrives. In other words, the completion is going to occur when? Not any time in this lifetime, but when the day of Christ arrives. Meaning that this idea, which is is actually a denominational uh, tenet in certain denominations of regenerational perfectionism, simply is not the biblical picture of our pilgrimage on earth. 
Regenerational perfectionism simply says that once you become a believer, the Holy Spirit begins to work on you to conform you to the image of Christ, which, of course, he does. And at some point down the road, varies with people, obviously, and you're submitting to the Holy Spirit. But at some point down the road in this life, you can become perfect, never to sin again. One of my secretaries way in the past, not at church, this was at the hospital, was of a denomination that believed that. And she told me with a straight face one day, she was explaining to me this, this idea. Her husband was a pastor, so, of this, of the church, so it's not like she was, you know, had some kind of aberrant understanding of what they believe. But she was there arguing with me a little bit about how she was perfecting. She hadn't sinned in years and years. Which was really interesting, God's sense of humor in this. Because right next to her, her desk was on a big, big window that looked right out onto the street outside her office at the hospital. And there, I just happened to catch, as she's talking to me, her car, illegally parked, with a big no parking sign. And I thought, well, this is really cute. And I said, so Betty, I said, so you've never seen really. And she was absolutely serious. And I said, isn't that your car illegally parked out there? And she said, oh, well, that's not a sin. And I said, got it. Okay. All right. I, I got this whole regenerational perfectionism then. Anyway, it is a process. And it will not be completed to that point of perfection until the day of Christ. Verse 7. Paul writes, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are all partakers of grace with me. And without the background of Paul's relationships to the other churches, and and I've certainly alluded to that, verse 7 is a little unexpected in its nearly mushy sentiment, again, about the Philippians. And I say that, it's it's a little unexpected, at least it was to me, because, remember, this is Paul. This isn't Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul, the non-compromising, stern, disciplinarian, who I always view as a special ops kind of guy for the Lord, bearing his fluffy little soul to the believers at this church. It's not typical for Paul. And he feels a special sense of connectedness and partnership with them. And that I totally get. But I want to note that the language here now becomes a little bit tedious. And I had to read this passage numerous times, even though, again, in my annual reading through the Scriptures, you know, this wasn't certainly anything new to me. But when you start taking a microscopic view of stuff, all of a sudden you start asking questions or they come to mind that you'd never thought of before. And it it just wasn't making sense to me with the way the wording was. And it was the part when he writes, it's only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. And I'm like, it's only right for me to feel it. And I kept reading it over and over again and asked for a little insight, though. And then a couple of things I think started dawning on me. First of all, when Paul says, it's only right for me to feel this way about you because I have you in my heart, that very expression there, using the word cardia, from which we get the word cardiac, Okay, that's the word in the Greek for his heart. He says, I have you in my heart. It doesn't equate to how we understand and how we use that same expression. In the day, in the use of the word heart, 
isn't a statement of emotional sentiment on Paul's part. Rather, in that day and in the language, the seat of one's emotions, so to speak, rather than being their heart, was actually their intestines. The splontnoi, as it was called. So now can you imagine, right, taking this and putting it into our cultural context to be a little silly, the bumper sticker, I heart you, we'd have to change it to I intestines you. And how do you, you know, how do you, I, I don't even want to see a picture of intestines on a bumper sticker, right? And I bowel you, that's not even, that's no better. But <laughs> to make it equate, I mean, that would be, that's the proper use of that. In the Greek and even in the Hebrew, the heart was not the place of emotional feelings. It was the seat of consciousness. It was the seat, rather, of one's personality, of one's mind, that is, of one's volitional thinking, their their decision-making processes. We would speak about that being in our heart. It'd be maybe more along the lines of, of when we might say, you know, my heart's really in this. That's getting a little closer. Or I will serve Christ with my whole heart. That is, with my whole being and with my whole purpose. Emotions don't necessarily even enter into that. It's a thoughtful or a willful decision. It's not an emotional decision. So when the interpreters translate Paul saying, it's only right for me to feel this way because I have you in my heart, it's a little bit of a misleading translation for the reasons that I just said. The verb does not contain an emotional referent. It contains, again, a volitional, that means an act of the will reference, meaning that it's only right for me to think about you all in this way. Okay, now what's my point of kind of boring you to death with that minutia? Here's the importance of this. His affection for the Philippian believers isn't merely because he gets along well with the Philippians or because they shower him with compliments and they gratify Paul's self-serving ego. And candidly, that's a pretty common, and it's an even a very understandable motivator for pastors to enjoy their congregations for those reasons. I do get that. Their congregations make them feel good. But that's not where Paul's heart is. Or to keep consistent with the language of the day, that's not where Paul's intestines are. Now remember in the opening of this letter, he identified himself as a bondservant of Christ. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense of the confirmation of the gospel, he writes, you are willful, thoughtful, purposeful partakers of grace with me. That would be a, a, probably a little better translation even than this whole hearty schmarty kind of thing. What this means is that the Philippian believers in a very real, in a very practical way were a true part of God's work which God was doing through Paul and the Philippians were in very real ways genuinely a part of Paul's mission. Their involvement with Paul in his mission wasn't wasn't <laughs> wasn't reduced to the notorious quarterly letter from the mission field which was ignored by 90% of the Philippians in the church, three-quarters of whom had never met Paul, nor probably really would care to. 
And when that is the extent of a church's participation in any mission, prayer rarely occurs for that missionary at any significant level. And now you know a big part of why and how of the way that we have come to do missions here at Faith. Instead of just writing a check to somebody out there on the mission field who is little known to us, if at all, doing so to assuage our sense of guilt, knowing that we are to be missions-minded, instead we decided at one point that we would send out from within our ranks and work to develop real relationships with those missionaries that we support. The Philippian church was prayerfully, relationally, and financially involved in the successes and in the trials of Paul's mission. So he wasn't some stranger that just came breezing through in one weekend and gave a pitch about what he believed the Lord was calling him to do. And out of some sense of OCN, you know what OCN is, obligatory Christian niceness, They vote to send them $100 a month, sticking a pin in a world's mission board, putting their prayer card up on a refrigerator, and then it's pretty much out of sight, out of mind. Now, call me cynical. (laughs) Thank you. But a lot of thought and a lot of examination of the reality of how traditional mission was working in our church went into the substantial change in the way that we came to do and do today, missions at faith. And one of the, uh, uh, I remember so clearly the meeting that I had at shepherding team with the elders in the day, and I had this idea of revamping the way we do things for a lot of the reasons that I've only just barely touched on right here. But I thought, I'm going to do a little, a little test to prove my point. And so I said to the elders, I said, I want you to sit down and name the missionaries of our church. That's all. Now, these are the elders. This isn't the rank and file, if you will, of the congregation, okay? This is the highest level of leadership. And in those, in those days, I may be mistaken on this, I think we had deacons. If they weren't deacons, I asked some other people um, who were, you know, more wired in, pretty deeply in. And I said, can you name your, our missionaries for us? And to be absolutely honest with you, I asked myself, and I was able to do it, but not without considerable wringing my hand and going, okay, I know there's that guy, that guy in South America. I would always forget him. And I would finally come up with him. But So I said to myself, that's my point. And why is that? It's because the missionaries that we were supporting, and I'm exaggerating a little bit, but in some cases not. They were our missionaries because at some point in time they called the church and they said, hey, you know, I'm so sorry, I got this passion for this, can I come and present my mission? And they present their mission and we get to know them over, you know, maybe just a Sunday even. Maybe it's a weekend or whatever. And now we got to decide if we're going to support them for missionaries. And it's like, there's no relationship there. And where there is no relationship there, prayer is not the, the most natural and, and, and the, the passion for that individual in prayer just isn't there without that relationship. And I said, you know what? We can do things differently. And then in God's providence, 
phenomenal individual by the name of Chris Nanakin. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say world-renowned missiologist who just happened to be at Bangor in the time. He appears, and we contact him, or he contacted us, whatever it was, and he became our missions consultant, and still is actually, and he gave more clarity and affirmation to exactly what we had been striving for for many years. So in Paul's day, when it was unpopular and even dangerous for another Christian to associate with or identify openly with the purposes of missionary Paul, the Philippians were partaking of his challenges with him. And in so doing, they too became recipients of God's grace as God was pouring that grace out on Paul. He was pouring it out on the Philippian believers as well. Now, I'm not sure if this works the way I intended it. Well, let me try it as to give a sort of a present-day example of what I'm trying to, to uh, just to underscore maybe a few things here. When when you see the weekly, or well, it was pretty much weekly. Again, I've gotten out of a lot of things and being off. I post from an organization, and I mean I'm Facebook now, from an organization called ICommitToPray.com. And I get a weekly, sometimes bi-weekly, whenever it occurs, a situation around the world of a dear Christian who is being genuinely persecuted for their faith. When you get such notifications, and by the way, this is not a drive-by guilting, okay? This is only by way of illustration, and I'll have a couple other things further on. So, you know, don't, don't take this because, first of all, I am, I am the chief of running through things and seeing, okay, is that something I'm really I'm going to be burdened, burdened about right now to pray for? And I personally just have been burdened to pray for the persecuted church. And so I'm passing that vision along. But again, that is something that God has to lay on everybody's heart. But when you see those kinds of things that I post, do you just skip over them or do you yawn or do you pray? Pastor Saeed Abedini, who I mentioned at the outset of this service, has been in Iranian jail now for over two years. Miriam Ibrahim, although she was spared again from death row, as I mentioned, she's still in Syria because they won't let her leave with her husband and her children. It's a chore to pray. At least it is for me, I'll be honest with you. And especially when there seems to be no movement, meaning no, nothing's changed, nothing's happening. And believe me, it would be so hard as I was getting further and further down my own personal little challenge here with people who I know are praying for me and asking, so so how are you doing? How's it going? And I hate to say, it's not going anywhere. There's really been no improvement. It's like we're at this plateau and it's not going forward and more weeks would go on. It's like, how you doing now? We're praying so hard. Our ladies are going, we're, we're praying. How's it going? It's the same as it was, and you hate to say it. That's when you have to persevere in prayer and understand that we don't understand the way God moves or chooses to move or chooses not to move for whatever reasons. But whether there is movement or not in your praying, don't you think that it absolutely blesses Pastor Abedini's wife, Nagme, and his two little girls to know that there are Christians all over the world who are praying for him and for them. I know that it does. Someone cares about their plight. 
And in the words of one scholar concerning Paul's situation, it says, when Paul was on trial, all Christians were on trial with him for the outcome could ultimately affect them all. All right, let me try and finish this thought pretty quickly then. A number of years ago, many years ago, when we were still in Chicago, Operation Rescue was on the rise around the country, and it had been doing their first rescues, meaning peaceful, absolute quiet prayer only, blockading, though, with your physical body, the entrance to abortion clinics. I was involved in the inaugural inaugural rescue, as they were called, in Chicago. It was hair-raising for me because I was a good, compliant, law-abiding citizen. And so when the police showed up with the paddy wagons and began physically handcuffing us, even with steel handcuffs in those days, not those nylon things, and physically carrying you and throwing you into a paddy wagon, it was traumatic and yet awesome and wonderful. And after I was put in the first jail and then transferred from that jail, which you didn't know how nice the jail was until you get to another jail, and we were taken to the main lockup in downtown Chicago with all the worst of the worst. Well, condensing the story, I was released finally on, uh, uh, I don't know, personal recognizance or something with the 270 others of us that were arrested late Saturday night, Sunday morning. I'm going to church, and it's not like I was unknown in the church. I was their pastoral intern. I'd been involved in field education and deeply involved in Awana. Well-known, and I thought, gee, I wonder, I just wonder what the body of Christ is going to have to say about what happened. And this, this, I mean, this was, this was huge. It was all over all the news stations, um, all over the, you know, just, it's not like it was unknown or anything else. And when I walked into church that morning, It was as if I didn't even exist, much less the whole situation that played out. I wasn't merely forgotten. I didn't exist. And a few months later, when Barb was incarcerated now for the exact same thing, what had our little body at the Evangelical Free Church there in Wheeling, Illinois, learned from my Little excursion, nothing. The same crickets were still singing their song. Cricket, cricket. So when Paul speaks this way of the Philippian believers who provided him with support, with prayers, they were intimately associated with him, involved with him in the good times and the bad times, in fellowship and in friendship. Paul is indebted to them as one who loves them with the love of Christ. And being the bondservant of Christ, it is all with a view of honoring his Lord and Savior. What a different expression of one's Christian faith this is from the more normal Christian behavior in the free world where living for Christ so often means doing God the enormous sacrificial favor of showing up for church once in a while, when convenient or when there happens to be an urgent personal need. 
And then even in that, the so-called worshiper comes and grabs what is appealing in the service, probably complains silently or audibly about the rest until they move on to the next church where they seek something that ministers to them, oblivious that they are supposed to be a contributing part of the unified body of Christ on earth. And this repeats itself until they have taken what they think they've needed and wanted from the local church. And they eventually throw up their hands, writing off the local church, forming their own self-styled worship in their living room or in front of their computer or in front of the TV or at the beach or at the gym, or you can fill in the blank with anything you want there. And smugly they are there self-justified by their self-styled, concocted brand of worship. The Christian is oblivious as to how utterly similar their worship is to the self-styled worship of Nadab and Abihu of Exodus fame, who worshipped the Lord in the way that they deemed was fitting and right. And they only did so until the Lord literally smoked them. A ball of fire from heaven came down. And they were gone. So Paul, in his love with the believers at Philippi and taking some liberties to read between the lines of the other things written by Paul about disingenuous preachers of his day, he emphasizes his sincerity of his mushiness toward his church. It's like he's saying, guys, I'm not just stroking you to keep you in my pocket or to coerce from you another love offering on my behalf. He is genuinely sincere, writing in verse 8, God is my witness. How long, how I long for you all with the affection of Christ. Paul was not just an apostle, but he was a good pastor. And yet he probably would not last more than a year or two if he were to show up and become the pastor of so many of our churches today. Paul writes to the Galatian church right at the outset, chapter 1 of Galatians. Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Referring to what he has already said to them and what he's going to say to them. Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving or trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. And, of course, he goes on then to start railing against them that I cannot believe that you have so quickly deserted the gospel of Jesus that was delivered to you with truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. So you start getting a feel for Paul's affection for these believers. It's been a good ride, so to speak, for Paul at Philippi. And it's been a great ride for Barb and us here at Faith. And it's why we've lasted so many years, because of the kindnesses, the genuine sincerity and the care of you believers for Barbara and I and for our children when our children were at home and in the house and involved with them physically and prayerfully in our own challenges with them. With Paul to the Philippians, 
I say truly, thank you. And God bless us to his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for a pastor who loves the people he serves. For a church family who loves children, their pastors, each other, and you, Lord. A family where over 140 men, women, and children, teenagers, volunteer a week of their time to minister to others. Please rain down your blessings upon these new converts from VBS, the new believers, uh, on their families, and even on those who weren't quite ready to make a decision this past week. Bless everyone in this sanctuary, O Lord. Grant them wisdom, peace. Be with them throughout the week. Draw them close to you, Lord. In all things, we pray you are glorified in everything we do. And may we long for you the way you long for us. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, your glorious Son, who uh, who uh, saved all of us. Amen. <laughs>